0: The following is a sermon from Park Church in Denver, Colorado. More information and resources can be found online at parkchurch.org. So today's scripture passage is in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 22, verses 15 through 22. And if you don't have a Bible of your own, there should be a Bible in the pew back in front of you, In those Bibles, uh, the passage can be found on page 777. And if you don't have a Bible, also please feel free to take that Bible uh, for yourself as a gift from Park Church. So, Matthew 22, starting at verse 15. Then the Pharisees went and plotted how to entangle him, Jesus, in his words. And they sent their disciples to him, along with the Herodians, saying, Teacher, we know that you are true and teach the way of God truthfully, and you do not care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances. Tell us then, what do you think? Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? But Jesus, aware of their malice, said, Why put me to the test, you hypocrites? Show me the coin for the tax. And they brought him a denarius. And Jesus said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? They said, Caesar's. Then he said to them, Therefore, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. When they heard it, they marveled, and they left him and went
1: away. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, Park. Uh, What a what a sweet joy it is to celebrate the, the life that is found in Christ with those brothers and sisters, sister. Wow, um, oh, so sweet. And today's an extra chipper day because we all got an extra hour of sleep, right? And the 9 a.m. was packed, you guys are, yeah, you're committed, 11 a.m., that's your service, here you are, got extended brunch time. Um, yeah, I was grateful for it, we had a birthday party last night, so I was like, that extra hour was real nice. When I realized my clock actually didn't change automatically and I was like, I got one more hour, this is a, it's gonna be a good morning. Um, my name is Neil, I serve as one of the pastors here, um, and it's, yeah, it's really a gift to continue through the book of Matthew, the gospel of Matthew. Uh, we got a few more weeks in Matthew, uh, the rest of this calendar year, then we'll be in Advent, um, then another mini series in the new year, and we'll be back in Matthew as we, we, uh, finish up the last several chapters. But let me pray for us, and then we'll get into Matthew chapter 22. Uh, Father, it's, it's good to gather with your people, uh, to hear voices singing and declaring the truths that uh, we need to be reminded of, that we just need to, to hear from one another, uh, places where maybe our, our faith feels weak, uh, where the, the brokenness of this life or the heaviness of our own sin, our own walking away from you, uh, it's just, it's burdensome. And, and we long to, to know the kind voice of a Savior who welcomes us in, who delights in us, a father who, who sees us through the righteousness of Christ and has freed us to, uh, to live with you. Uh, so may that, may that be the invitation that we hear. I ask that you would, you would give us ears to hear. Maybe, maybe there, there are places that makes it difficult for us to hear your voice right now. And may you settle those areas of our hearts. Uh, anything that, that would, would block us, that would keep us from receiving the voice of our shepherd. Yeah, may you, you, you quiet those voices and make yours louder, more vivid, more clear. Uh, maybe there are places that we, we don't want to bring out into the light, just areas of, of shame that we want to keep tucked away. May we hear the invitation that it is good to live honestly before you, the God who sees us, who loves us, who knows us, and who welcomes us back in again and again and again. Uh, so please do that this morning. Now uh, wield your word uh, for the sake of your people. And, and call us into deeper communion with you. I pray this all in Jesus' name, amen. I think all of us are probably aware of the, the questions that people ask us when there's, there's more kind of embedded in the question. Uh, there's some assumptions in there. They're kind of looking for, maybe trying to sniff out a little bit more than what the question immediately intimates. Uh, so maybe questions like uh, the one that came up for me last week, little man or sweet cow? you guys don't have strong opinions about this. J- quick show of hands. Who says Little Man? Okay, almost to a quarter to a third. Sweet Cow? Okay, more. Is there a ride in? Like a, a high point creamery anybody? Uh, their prices went up though recently. We were there. I mean, that was like a go-to. And I was I know food prices have gone up, but it was it was kind of next level, but it's still it's in the running. Um I still think little man's better. They have my heart. 11 years ago when we moved here, it was just like we'd go to that giant milk jug every Sunday night and it's, uh, it's got a hold of me. Um, or, or maybe it's the best pizza in Denver. I feel like the competition is between Blue Pan and pizza just, or Denver just not have good pizza, I think is the, the net effect of it. Um, if there's good pizza out there and it's not Blue Pan, I would love to know about it because we're, uh, we're still on the hunt. Um, but these questions, I mean, they, they come up and there's, there's more that's being asked. Uh, what kind of human are you? Uh, can I really trust you? you know, can I trust your taste? And when you say this is your favorite ice cream, this is your favorite pizza, you know, th- there's more that's trying to be teased out. Well, the questions become weightier as well. You know, we're, we're on the hunt. We've got a, an almost five-year-old. We're on the hunt for, for schools now, for kindergarten. And yeah, the, the conversation is lively. Uh, private school, public school, home school, co-op, charter, public? Uh, do you do the classical model? Like, what, what, What's your approach to education? And when, when that question is being asked, there's often so much that's still being assumed, kind of tucked away in that. Uh, what do you value? What do you not value? What do you prioritize? What, what do you mitigate? Or another question that, that feels relevant. Uh, imagine if, if someone at your, your Halloween party last weekend was like, So what are your thoughts on affirmative action? Yes or no? Like, you're clearly after more than just like small talk around the punch bowl. Like, there's something you're after. Uh, A whole host of kind of where do you fall politically? What do you think about incentives? Uh, How do do you kind of read the the history of the past couple decades and how these things have played out? Uh, we, We all engage with these questions. We see these questions. At times, we ask these questions where assumptions are tucked within them, and more is trying to be drawn out in the process of asking it. that's what we have with Jesus, who he interacts with in this story uh, that we're looking at in Matthew 22. Uh, They come with a question where there's a lot more packed within it. And what he does with that is is very exposing for them and I think will be uh, for us as well. Where are we in Matthew? Well, there's this clear rising tension between Jesus and the the cultural elites of his day. You know, those who kind of hold the power, the religious power of that community, Um, And Jesus knows that. He's very intentional about it. We're now in the last week before his crucifixion. Like he's marching toward the cross. He knows that's coming soon. Uh, For so long in his ministry, it's kind of probably be a little bit more discreet. Uh, Even the parables that he would tell were a little bit more hidden. Uh, Only those with with discernment that that God was was giving the ability to see could kind of be drawn into those stories. But now, now he's putting a much finer point on the stories he's telling. He's saying, hey, this is what the kingdom of God is like. Let me describe it to you. Let me tell a story. And and, and what these religious leaders, what these cultural elites are finding, is that hey, we're we're on the wrong side. Like the way that Jesus talks about it, and, and God's kingdom being established, we're we're like not the good guys. And so there's a growing frustration. There's this growing angst. There's almost this vitriol that is coming from these people because they recognize Jesus and what he speaks, what he represents what he's come to do, and now the people that are following him, that, it's a growing threat to what they're trying to build, the, the type of life, the type of kingdom that they're trying to establish for themselves, and so they want to do something about it. We see there in verse 15, then the Pharisees went and plotted how to entangle him in his words. All right, so these Pharisees, I mean, these are There's so much good about the Pharisees. You know, they they get a a bad rap for good reason, but it's like, there's so much good. They loved God's word. Like, they loved the law. They loved what God had revealed about himself. The the trouble was, they took a really good thing and said, we're gonna build upon that. We're gonna go beyond that. And and, and we think we can actually achieve this on our own. And that's where we're gonna find our identity. That's where we're gonna build our life. That's where we're gonna find our sense of purpose of being self-righteous before God. We could actually do all the things and then a few extras that God didn't even say, We can do those as well. And it became this crushing burden upon the people of God because those who were teaching them the law were making it impossible to be invited into his grace by the way that they would describe who he was. So you have these religious leaders that were were rejecting the kind of secular culture, rejecting kind of the the Hellenistic influence and the the Roman occupation. And they they saw all these influences on the outside as being bad. And they said, let's follow God and let's, let's do it in our own strength. Let's be good enough. In our own day, that's taking the goodness of submitting to God's word, of of looking at what what it means to follow Jesus and saying, I can do this on my own strength. Actually, through my own kind of moral resolve, I can check all the right boxes. What do I need to be and do for these different people in different contexts? Well, in front of those people, I need to, you know, be a part of a small group and maybe attend church. And over here, I need to look a certain part and have certain disciplines. And I can do the things to think that I'm good enough. And other people experience me as being good enough, trying to build a kingdom based on religious performance. Again, taking a good thing of obeying God, submitting to his word, but misunderstanding God's grace in the midst of it. And thinking we can do it on our own. So you have the Pharisees. They're like, we we need to figure out a way to entangle Jesus. Like, he's just too popular. And what he says is threatening us. And what we're trying to build, we need to get rid of him. And so they send their disciples, verse 16, to him. Which is interesting. They they send their disciples. They're not going. Maybe from fear. They just realize how good Jesus is at at having these conversations. Or maybe they're like, we've got it. Like, this is the one that's really going to get Jesus tripped up. And so we don't even need to go. We'll just send those who... Who follow us, along with the Herodians? Who are the Herodians? We know less about them, but they, they like the Herods. <laughs> they, they like these these rulers. You know, the, the current moment, it's, it's Herod Antipas, but they, these rulers that were there because of Roman favor. Because Rome, who had occupied this territory over the Jewish people, the Herods were there kind of having this political and governmental oversight in the area. And the Herodians said, that's a good thing. We want them to reign and rule. We're okay uh, with some of the elements of Roman occupation and oversight. Um, And really, they they had a lot of uh, kind of aspiration that the Messiah, the Christ, the one who would save them, that they had heard about and was promised was going to come through this line of the Herods. So if if the the Pharisees were like, hey, let's push against those things, push against kind of secular political culture, Um, we're going to develop a religious community, then the Herodians were those who were saying, we want that. Actually, salvation is going to come through the political governance, uh, the political authorities that are here. On our own day, I think this this comes to, to bear, we're two days away from election day. Um, how often, I think even there's been an uptick over the past few years, how often our hopes, our longings, our, our desires go toward, well, who's in power? Uh, who's in the Oval Office? Uh, who controls the House or the Senate? Uh, what legislation is going through? Uh, what decision is coming through the Supreme Court? Uh, locally, like who's, who's at the... Uh, you know, gonna, gonna, gonna make the laws that influence our life? Who's being elected to be governor of our state? I mean, very real questions and really a good thing. A good thing for governments to exist. Like God instituted the political authorities that do exist and says this is good to organize communal life together. But when we take a good thing and then make it an ultimate thing, which is what the Herodians had done, then it becomes. A bad thing. It becomes something that we try to build our lives and our kingdom around and say, this is where hope is found. This is where our identity is found. And that's what you have with these two groups, the Pharisees, these Herod supporters, and really they don't particularly like each other. I mean, this is a, this is an unlikely coalition, but as it's said, like a, a common enemy can make us friends for a moment. And so you have the Pharisees, you have the Herodians coming together and saying, in different ways, Jesus is a threat to the kingdoms that we're trying to build. The life that we think we need, the things that we need to do to be okay, Jesus is a threat to that. And so we need to do something to undermine what he's teaching and the following that he has. We do much the same thing. Now, maybe we do it in these religious ways like the Pharisees. Maybe we do it in these political ways like the Herodians. But, but I think the the options are, are many more in our culture today. You know, if, if in the first century Palestine, it was a little bit more like, know, the hotline in grade school lunches. You guys remember this? Maybe it was just in my experience of, of rural Indiana. But I was like, here's your option. Like, bring your lunch, convince somebody to make you lunch or make your own, or here's the hotline. Like, this, it's get your rectangular pizza that's kind of like crusty on the edges. Um, okay, a few people know, know what I'm talking about. The rest of you had deluxe lunches, uh, not, not where I'm from. Um, few options were before you. But today, it feels a little bit more like Yelp on a Saturday night. It's like, right, scroll through. We're, it, it seems endless in terms of, of where we could go, what we could enjoy, what type of, of food do we want, you know, what's our cutoff on the the rating, you know, are we like a 3.5 and above, or I don't know, it's like you got a sleeper in there, it's coming in at 2.3, but it's probably really good, and it's got some bad reviews. Uh, that's how our hearts move out into the world today. So many different options. So many different options to try to build a kingdom, to establish a life apart from the reign of God. But I think what underlines so much of it for us, especially living in a city like Denver, is this this desire for amusement. Amusement. I think Initially we think like amusement park, whatever else, but this this word, it, it literally means to distract towards something that is pleasurable. Uh, to, to distract away toward something that would feel enjoyable for the moment. It was actually originally used um, in a military context, like a, in, in, an army that was distracted from the battle in front of them with something that felt pleasurable for a moment, but left them vulnerable over here to attack. And I think so often this is where we live our lives. We long for more enjoyment. We long for more experiences. We long for our lives to feel fun, which is not bad in itself, but we kind of push that forward and make it the ultimate thing that would define us. Is my life entertaining? Is it exciting? Do I have something to look forward to? What other people think of my life? What, what can I kind of present to put out there to the world and what they think? And, and like, like the, the, the army that would be distracted in the midst of a battle, we miss so much of the substance that Jesus has for us because we're amused, we're distracted by something dazzling us in our midst. I appreciate what Neil Postman said in his book, Amusing Ourselves to Death. Americans no longer talk to each other, they entertain each other. They do not exchange ideas, they exchange images. They do not argue with propositions, they argue with good looks, celebrities, and commercials. They do not exchange ideas, they exchange images. He wrote this before the advent of social media. Like his ability to see where things were headed in American culture. Uh, And and now that's how often we relate to one another. Uh, What what feels good? What is entertaining? What can I project out to the world? Uh, Losing the substance, losing the invitation of the life that God has for us for something to merely amuse us. Well, if that is much of the undercurrent, especially in the city of Denver, how does this get worked out for us individually? And our own kind of kingdom building projects to establish the right kind of life that we think we need. I think one of the best ways to do this is to follow our strongest emotions. Follow your strongest emotions. Where do you feel the most angry and and see that kind of eruption come out? Where do you feel the most sadness and grief? What about fear and anxiety, or particular depression, or even excitement and and, and delight? You, You start pulling the threads of those bigger emotions. And while those emotions are not bad in themselves, like God gave those to us to tell us something, if you start getting underneath that, you begin to see, well, I value things here. I long for these things. And I'm willing to invest my life in a particular way to, to get them, to get the promises of those things, to get the life that I think that would afford me. And when it's threatened, when other people threaten those, well, I'm willing to push them outside of my kingdom because I'm, I'm kind of building what I want. I've got my own project going and I want to make sure they stay at the margins. Other ways to think about this. Where does your mind drift in still moments? Maybe it's right before you go to sleep when you're laying in bed, maybe it's first thing in the morning, Uh, maybe it's when you're you're on your commute, Um, maybe it's when you're, you're daydreaming at work, but you have those spaces where your mind is just kind of free, it's not being told what to pay attention to or focus on or do, and it just goes to certain places. Where does it go? Uh, what type of life is being imagined? Uh, what, what do we begin thinking like, "This is what I need, this is what needs to change. this is what I really want." You start digging underneath that, and you find something. We find something of the, the kingdom-building project that we are giving our lives to. Another way to do it: would be look at the relational ruts you find yourself in. Now if you have roommates, with your roommates, with your close friends, now, if you're married, it's with your husband or wife. If you've got kids and relationship with your kids, maybe it's with your family of origin. Maybe it's a string of friendships that you've worked through or work relationships that you've kind of gone through and you see similar, if you pay attention long enough, you see some similar trends that have happened again and again. And yes, other people have things to own, but what does that tell us about us that we were trying to build in that relational environment and we keep getting stuck in these same places? Start paying attention to that. and We realize, wow, maybe I'm trying to build my own little kingdom with these values, these priorities, these things that I think I need. I don't know what that was, but it almost stung me. I appreciate what what Martin Luther has said about this. He said, whatever your heart clings to and confides in, that is really your God whatever our hearts cling to and confide in they they run after they find a sense of just solace and rest and joy not that we're we're designed to enjoy the good gifts that God has given to us but when that becomes the very means of our existence our means of being okay that's probably part of the center of the kingdom that we're trying to build apart from Christ I think there's also more to the story when we begin pulling on these threads and kind of lifting up the stones of our lives and seeing what's underneath, uh, I know, I've found it's not just about the longings and desires we have, it's also about the pains and the losses that we've experienced. The, these things come from somewhere. Uh, even just for me a couple of weeks ago, sitting down with a mentor and processing a particular relational rut in my life and seeing it come out in a few different places. And as we're, we're talking through and I'm sharing some different instances and stories, like the frustration I can feel and, you know... He looks at me and he says, I, we all have these longings, and when we don't have these longings met, uh, we tend to respond in the ways that you're, you're describing. And he said, I, I think for you, one of the, the core longings that you have is the desire to be understood. I'm like, yes, like that, that is it. It, it. And what I can tend to do, and what I'm learning more about myself, is that when I don't feel understood, is that I'll, I'll circle back around. I'll find another way to say it. I'll say it a little more strongly. Uh, I feel like now I've got the the right way to articulate it. Now you should be convinced. Now you should fully understand where I'm coming from, what my motives were, how I'm thinking about it, what my kind of ideas are around it, and that exhausts people that are close to me. And beginning to see that and realizing, and it comes from a couple places. One, it's a legitimate desire. A legitimate desire, and I can can pull back parts of my own story and be like, man, areas that I, I long to be understood, and wasn't, probably should have been, and wasn't. A long, a longing to be heard, like a good desire, but, but wasn't. Real pains that, that need to be healed, need to continue to, to be healed. But also, I can place burdens on other people to understand me in a way that they actually never can. And that, that will crush them. Because that's the next thing my mentor said to me, he said, you, what you're expecting from others in this space and being understood, they cannot give to you. There's only one person who fully understands you, only one person who can truly understand you, and that is Jesus. And he longs to, to see you in that space, uh, to allow you to be understood by him. And to so the extent to which I'm trying to pull from other people extract is like, oh, understand me, understand, like see more of my heart where I'm coming from, my thinking, that place is an undue burden on them that they can never fully bear. And what we need to do is to go before Jesus and say, you're the only one who can truly satisfy this. You're the one who can truly long. And he heals in that space. He becomes the means that we need uh, to hear and receive the Father's love. Where does our love and loyalty go? Where do our affections go? Um, So many different places. (laughs) But here's the thing. Jesus' holiness demands no other king or kingdom but his own. And his love and his willingness to pursue us means that he will confront us in our own kingdom-building projects. That's what we see here in this story. So pick back up in Matthew 22. So we got the Pharisees teaming up with the Herodians, a little unexpected. Uh, But here they come together and they say, and pay attention, middle of verse 16, pay attention to how they say a lot of really nice and pretty true things about Jesus, but with a manipulative heart. I mean, this is like trying to butter up just like a string of flatteries toward Jesus to to kind of lower his his guard to get him uh, entrapped in his speech. So here they are, teacher, we know that you are true and teach the way of God truthfully, and you do not care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances. Tell us then what you think. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? All right, a little background on this tax. Um, this is a very particular tax that's in mind called the poll tax. And this was uh, because the, the Romans had conquered and occupied uh, Palestine and this territory and the Jewish people. And the Jews didn't like that. I mean, it's like pretty expected. You, you don't like being conquered and then ruled by people outside of your own. That's what they're experiencing under Caesar and Roman occupation. This particular tax, the poll tax, is 1% about a denarius per year, not all that overwhelming of a tax. Uh, It represented and symbolized the fact that they didn't rule themselves, but they had some outside ruler who did not trust God, did not submit to God, that ruled over them and oppressed them. And so it was this very tax, about 25 years prior, in the year 6 AD, um, that uh, a man named Judas, uh, another Galilean, uh, he'd actually... Uh, brought about a revolt up against the Roman occupation and the Roman rulers because of this tax. They're like, we can't do that. We're not going to pay that. You are, you are oppressing us. You are subjugating us. And what this tax represents is antithetical to following God. We need to revolt. And ultimately that was, uh, was crushed. But there were still plenty of sentiments around that. So this is a, this is a divisive question. A pretty explosive question For it made, in in our first reading, feel pretty innocent. Um, But it was divisive and also legitimate. Like, everyday Jews were wondering, what do we do with the poll tax? We want to follow God. We don't want to be killed. (laughs) and We want to live, like, as peaceably as we can. Uh, Is this dishonoring to God to pay the tax or not? Like, what what do we do with that? So they're they're, they're kind of abusing a really legitimate question that meant something to a lot of people as a way to to trap Jesus. Because here's what they, they thought either. Jesus says, don't pay the tax. Uh, Caesar is reigning in such a way that pushes against the reign of God. Their occupation is unjust. Don't pay the tax. And if he did that, then Rome would say, well, this reminds us of a guy, you know, two and a half decades ago. He's probably trying, he's got this big following. He's probably trying to, to start another revolt. We need to capture him and kill him very quickly because that's what they did with people who would be insurgents in their, in their territories. So they thought, okay, we'll, we'll get rid of him that way if he says don't pay the tax. But if he says do pay the tax, then you've got this group of people, the, these Jewish um, people who are following Jesus and saying, we, we think you might be the Messiah, you might be the Christ, you might be the one who is, has been promised to come and is going to deliver us and is going to going to reject the Roman oppression around us. Like, we want to be freed from that. And then if he comes in and says, go ahead and pay the tax, no big deal, then all of a sudden his following, this large group of people, his popularity, it's going to disintegrate almost immediately. This is why they think they have this sort of gotcha question. Like, either way Jesus answered this, we have undermined his ministry and he will no longer be a threat to us. Well, Jesus is aware of what they're up to. Verse 18, but Jesus, aware of their malice, said, why put me to the test, you hypocrites? Which I find a little comical that they're like, oh, teacher. And he's like, you hypocrites. Jesus has no trouble just saying things that need to be said, even if they're not uh, the most pleasant. You hypocrites. I mean, these are, the idea here is something is being presented that is not consistent with what's underneath. They have these ulterior motives, they're trying to like butter him up and ask this question that feels really really helpful. Uh, But really they're just trying to trap him. But it also has this idea of a lack of self-awareness. They actually think they're on the right side. They they think they're actually building the kingdom of God and like siding with God. And here's Jesus coming in and they see him as a threat to what is good. And they're not even aware enough to recognize, oh he is the embodiment of, of God's kingdom. Like he is the one that we are to recognize. And he says, why put me to the test? Why put me to the test? Uh, It makes me wonder, our own questions toward Jesus, our own questions around the Bible and the Christian faith. Uh, Do we come in with this type of uh, desire to entrap Jesus or God in in some sort of an impossible situation? Or do we come in with a curiosity, a desire to learn, to understand, to say that there is a good God who is wise and he speaks and he reveals. He does according to his timeline and what he sees fit, and he actually invites me to ask these questions, or do we get sucked into this cynicism of Jesus audience before him? Well, he, he takes their question and he actually responds to it. Verse 19, "Show me the coin for the tax." and they brought him a denarius. Now it wasn't just the tax that was offensive. To the Jews, the very coin itself, and I think we, we should have a picture of what this coin looked like. The coin itself represented uh, an undermining of god 's authority, and actually any self respecting Jew would not carry these coins around uh, for their everyday business. They actually had a local mint where they could make their own coins, and, and, and they allowed that. the Romans allowed that. but when it came to this tax, they actually needed this coin. Well, what about this coin is particularly Offensive. You see the, the face there. You would have a picture of, of the Caesar. Now, this is Tiberius, um, likely the, the coin that they would have been using, uh, the one that would have been handed over to Jesus. In a case you can't read and then quickly translate uh, what's up there, um, it says, Tiberius Caesar, son of the divine Augustus. So Augustus, former Caesar, um, made himself divine in the eyes of his empire. And now you have a later Caesar declaring to be son of the divine, son of God, Caesar, son of God, a direct affront to who Jesus is in his reign. And then on the backside, you have what translates supreme pontiff, which speaks to the Roman religion. So not only is this the son of God, but also the high priest of our religion, of what allows us to to access the gods. So a representation that directly confronted, directly undermined the reign of God in this people. And so really, you shouldn't have had a, a coin like that if you were a self-respecting Jew, except for very quickly to, to pay the tax and move on. And so it's a little bit telling that Jesus is like, hey, I don't, I don't, have, any, I don't have any of those coins. Um, why don't you bring me a coin? And they're like, oh yeah, here you go, we got one. He's like, oh, okay, so, so you who are trying to, to kind of pit me against the, the, this empire and try, to, to, try to, to trap me in my words you yourself have the very coin that represents what you say you stand against. So they bring him the coin. And he asks the question. Jesus said to them, verse 20, whose likeness and inscription is this? They said, Caesar's. And here's where he draws out this, this kind of false dilemma that they've put in front of him. What they think is this impossible lose-lose situation. Then he said to them, therefore, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they're left speechless. They're marveled. Luke said that they walked away with, with nothing to say. So what is he saying here? He, he's situating the kingdoms correctly. He said, it, it's fine. Pay the tax. That's not a big deal. God owns all of it anyway. God has established the governing authorities. He's established this particular government. And he is over it. Like The Romans are going to be in the history books before too long anyway. Don't sweat it. Pay the tax. That's okay. But then he draws this comparison. It's like, okay, what what inscription, what likeness, what image is on this coin? Well, it's Caesar's. Okay, well, then give that to Caesar. Totally good. I can I can provide for you. It's left us asking the question... What bears God's likeness? What has his inscription? What bears his image? And the answer is us, humanity. So to render the things that are God's to God is to say, that's fine, give your denarius over, give your coin over, not a big deal. But when it comes to the entirety of your lives, your will, your desires, what you pursue, what you, how you understand yourself, your words, your actions, your thought life, when it, becomes to you, when it comes to you as the very image of God, render all of that, give all of that back to God because he reigns over all of it, which is why they're left speechless. See, all of us are on these kingdom-building projects. We, we drift into it. We find ways to do it, to think this is what I need for security, for safety, what I need for comfort, what I need for joy, and we're on these kingdom-building projects and realize that deviates from God's reign. It deviates from his kingdom. We've all failed and run in this direction, we feel the effects of this. I love what Paul Tripp says about how we we tend to glorify ourselves, we put ourselves at the center. He said, self-glory will make you an easily irritated, critical, and judgmental parent. Self-glory will turn a marriage into a war of who gets what they want first. Self-glory will make you an exhausting, entitled friend. Self-glory will keep you from being satisfied and make it more natural for you to complain than to be thankful. Self-glory will make you more known for your demands than for your service. Self-glory will cause you again and again to take credit for what you could have never earned or produced on your own. Self-glory will make you threatened by and envious of the success of others. Self-glory will turn you into a church consumer instead of a committed participant in its work. Self-glory deceives us, distracts us, and entraps us, and it can ultimately destroy us. Self-glory leaves behind a mountain of broken people and things. It never produces good fruit. This is the heart of our kingdom-building projects. We so inflate self that it pushes other things and other people to the margins and saying, you must get in line or else you will bear the cost. You will bear the wrath in some way of threatening my kingdom. I must receive what I want. I must receive the glory and I'm going to pursue that and leverage my life and make sacrifices to get those things in whatever way I see fit. We don't speak this way, but we often live this way. We invest our energy. We invest our money. We invest our time. We allow other people to become expendable because they're not actually joining us in our own personal kingdom building projects. And it leads to this series of just destruction and and ruin internally and externally, a string of broken relationships, of difficulty, of frustration, of feeling alienated from God. It's because we're trying to build a kingdom without the true king. We're trying to value things that he said, put them in their proper place. Recognize me. Because what we're doing is taking the good gifts of God And making them ultimate things, inflating them such they're over God in our hearts, in our affections, in our lives. And that ultimately crushes us and it crushes those around us. But here's the invitation for us we have a king who has established a kingdom. When he looks at all of us and sees the many ways that we have run from him, and we keep going back to the same things, we try, we, we find different ways to, uh, we just become so creative in what we're building for ourselves, and he looks at us, we, when he is entirely right and just to punish us, to crush us, to kill us, he says, I'm going to do the exact opposite. I'm gonna enter into this story. As the king, I'm gonna humble myself, lower myself. I see the guilt, I see the shame, I see the brokenness, I see what people have done to themselves by trying to be kings and queens themselves and building their own empires, their own kingdoms. I'm gonna enter into that story and I'm gonna bear all the effects of that upon myself. Instead of putting that on them, I'm gonna bear it myself. He's just a handful of days away from marching to the cross where he would bear the full extent of God's wrath, the shame, the guilt, the brokenness, the difficulty, the ways in which we rebel and run so many different directions, the way that we try to build our own kingdoms and we feel them begin to crumble and fall apart. He says, I I took all of that upon myself so that you may be welcomed in, so that you may taste that which is truly life, so that you may come into my kingdom and experience my heart, experience my love, and live as the human you were designed to live as. His yoke is easy, his burden is light because we're made for that. We're made to be invited into and to receive the invitation of this God, of this king who loves us and frees us under his good rule. Let's pray. Uh, Jesus, thank you uh, that as the king, you had compassion on us. Uh, You entered in with tenderness and with kindness. uh, That You see each of us right now, the things that we're carrying, the things that burden us, uh, the ways that we we discern our own hearts. Um, Yeah, maybe just frustrated with ourselves, frustrated with those around us. You, You have the ability to be present with us in all of that, the details of it. You know it better than we do. And then you invite us to see you as the king who laid down his life, who is our Savior, who invites us into a better kingdom, into a better way. So enable enable us to hear. Enable us to, to receive. Give us a softness. Give us a receptivity to you. Maybe for the first time. Maybe we feel like we've been coming again and again and again, but may we know that that invitation is for each of us. Thank you for being the king that you are. Thank you for for inviting us into life, into a way of thriving under your voice, under your reign. And may that be such sweet news to us as we consider our own lives, as we recognize your work, and we feel that imitation yet again. I pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen. Hey,
0: thanks for listening. Park Church exists to make disciples of Jesus for the glory of God and the joy of all people. More information and more resources can be found online at parkchurch.org. Take care.